those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. That's a well-known, well-used quote with much truth in it. And in our text of Scripture this morning, as Paul continues to contrast the difference between slaves and sons, spiritually speaking, he goes back to a historical example. And he wants them to understand the attitudes and actions that caused these events in this historical example so that the hearers of this letter would not be doomed to repeat it, would not be doomed to employ those same attitudes and actions that were causing them to walk away from the gospel. So I want us to look at what Paul says about this story from history in the book of Genesis. And we'll begin in Galatians chapter 4. Look there with me. Galatians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 21. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this New Testament letter. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hey, question for you this morning. Are you enjoying your religious liberty? Amen, I am. Aren't you grateful for freedom to worship? Since the inception of the Baptist denomination around the 1600s, Baptists have always stood, championed religious liberty. We understand how important it is that if people worship, they worship according to their own conscience and dictates, not by any coercion of the state. And so we're here because we want to be here, amen? And we're here freely to lift up the name of Jesus. We ought to be grateful on this July 4th week for religious liberty. I hope you'll just tell the Lord thank you that you live in a land that offers you that. Galatians chapter 4 verse 21, the Bible says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, here's the historical example, That Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But... The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today in the strong and precious name of Jesus. We're so grateful, Lord, that because of the finished work of Christ, we can now be in the presence of the great I Am. To worship you, to adore you, to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. And Lord, we are expectant today. We're expecting you, Lord, to speak into our lives. We are expecting you to change our hearts, to transform us, Lord, so that we can leave today 
looking more like Jesus, more grateful for the gospel, more determined to live a life that glorifies your great name. So Lord, have your way in our midst, by your Spirit, as your word goes forth. Help us to to gain a deeper, fuller appreciation today for Jesus and his finished work. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As Paul defends and articulates the true gospel throughout this letter, fighting against some false teaching that had infiltrated the churches in Galatia, he continues to contrast the difference between slaves and sons. When he uses the word slaves here in the book of Galatians, he means those that believe that their adherence to the law saves them. He's dealing with false teaching that said, if you really want to be right with God, you've got to do the, the, the different parts. You've got, to, you've got to keep the different parts of the Jewish law. You've got to be circumcised and, and go to the festivals and the feast if you really want God to accept you. We've heard you've accepted Christ, and that's great, but not only do you need Jesus, you need to do these other things as well. And so he's dealing with this false teaching that said that if you adhere to the law correctly, God will accept you. God will give you favor. He calls those folks slaves. Because folks that believe that their salvation is up to them are always working, always striving to be right with God. And they never know if they've done enough. By sons, he means those who have received the promise of blessing through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You see, sons are free to enjoy a relationship with God and serve God, not to gain his favor, but to serve God as as an act of gratitude because they have God's favor. There's a huge difference between those two. And he's saying that these are sons. Slaves, to summarize, are those trying to save themselves. Sons are those who have a relationship with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And Paul in this letter is amazed and a little bit angry that these these church members who had professed faith in Christ, who are sons of God, would even want to think about being slaves again, placing themselves under the Jewish law. And so he wants to drive his point home that being a son is far superior to being a slave. Now last week we saw that he appealed to their relationship. He talked to them as a Father talks to their children. He shows he cares for them and and doesn't doesn't want them to get into this false doctrine to follow these false teachers. Today, we're going to see he uses allegory to to really drive his point home and bring this section to a conclusion. Now, we see how he uses allegory there in verse 21. He's trying to make this point. Tell me, uh, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, he said, if you want to play that game, let's go back and look at an example from the Old Testament, from the law, from the Torah. And look what he says there in verse 24. Now these, uh, Hagar and Sarah, may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So he's using allegory here, correspondence, from a historical example, something that really happened to make a point about the attitudes and actions that were causing people to walk away from the true gospel. And so in this this story from Genesis chapter 16 and following, uh, Paul draws parallels uh, with uh, with the competing 
false gospel that had infiltrated the churches in Galatia. So, in this passage, Paul highlights four different realities, four different um, uh, contrasts here that I want you to see. Number one, in this passage, Paul highlights two women. He highlights and contrasts two women. And again, he mentions there in verse 22, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. And that is a reference to Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to give you just a little bit of historical background from Genesis, uh, quickly summarizing so we can understand the background of this passage in Galatians. At age 75, Abraham was called by God to go to Canaan. And when he went to Canaan, God promised him he would give him a son and give him many descendants who would grow into a great nation. He promised he would give that nation a land in which to live. And he promised that through his descendants, through Abraham's descendants, he would provide blessing for all the peoples on the earth. So that promise was fulfilled in that God gave Abraham and Sarah a son. He provided sons for Isaac and more sons and sons and grandsons and ancestors. And they grew into the Israel, uh, Israel nation, the Hebrew people. And through the Israelites, God sent his son Jesus Christ to come and die for the sins of the world so that anybody from any people, any tribe, any language can place their faith in Christ and be blessed with salvation. That's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. But God made that promise to Abraham at the age of 75. Here's the problem. Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children at this point. The, the, all the promises to Abraham hinged on the fact that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. And Abraham Sarah, uh, 75, Sarah's a, a bit younger, uh, but they were unable to have children. Sarah was unable to uh, uh, conceive and have children. So God was going to perform a miracle by sending them a son. At age 85, 10 years after the promise, remember they're getting older, the son had not yet arrived. So Sarah becomes impatient. And she makes a very unwise suggestion. She says, Abraham, let's make this thing happen. I know God promised, but I don't see it happening. It's been 10 years. I'm getting older. I, I just don't think I'm going to be able to bear a son. So here's my servant woman, my mistress named Hagar. You take her and have relations with her. And she'll bear a son, and that'll be the son that God promised. So instead of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise, they took matters into their own hands. So Abraham uh, goes into Hagar, Sarah's maid, and has a son. Hagar gets pregnant when Abraham's 86, and Sarah gets jealous. Things are so difficult in the home that Sarah throws Hagar out. But the Lord intervenes, sends Hagar back, and promises to take care of her and her son. When Abraham was 86, the son was born, and Abraham calls him Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the servant of Sarah. At age 99, God speaks to Abraham again and promises again that he will have a son by Sarah and says to call his name Isaac. Later, God appears and uh, again and reaffirms the promise to Sarah as well. At age 100, the son is born. His name's Isaac, which means laughter, which is a reminder that when Sarah heard she was going to have a son, she laughed. And when she had the son, 
uh, she named him Isaac as God commanded. So the son is born when Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90. It's a remarkable story. So here we have Abraham and Hagar with a son named Ishmael, and Abraham and Sarah with a son named Isaac. Ishmael was the son that came about because Abraham and Sarah got impatient, took matters into their own hands. Isaac is the son that God promised Abraham and Sarah. That's the, that's the historical background of Galatians chapter 4. So, to give, and this is in your notes, to give Abraham and Sarah uh, a son was God's promise and God's plan. That's how he was going to bless the ends of the earth, by giving Abraham and Sarah a son. Abraham having a son with Hagar was an attempt to gain God's blessing through human cunning and effort. God said, I want to give you a son. Ten years went by. They didn't see a son. But they wanted that blessing, so they took matters into their own hands through their own human cunning and effort. They thought, well, we'll, we'll bypass this promise of God. We'll stop trusting God, and we'll make this happen on our own. You see, it says there in verse 23 of Galatians chapter 4, that the son of the slave, Ishmael, son of Hagar, was born according to the flesh. They took matters into their own hands. They, they wanted to make it happen without trusting in the promise of God. So here's the point that he's making to the, the, the listeners in Galatia. Anyone, listen, that trusts their adherence to the law or their moral effort to save them is just like Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. That's his point. That, that if you're a slave, not a son, if you're trying to earn your salvation by adherence to the law, you're just like Abraham and Sarah, instead of trusting God's promise of blessing, you are taking matters into your own hands and trying to earn God's blessing with human cunning and effort. That's exactly the, the point that he's making by referencing Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. And so, if you're here this morning and you are bent on saving yourself or trying to save yourself, you think you can somehow be good enough to earn God's favor and acceptance? You think you're somehow moral enough to go to heaven when you die, even though you've not received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? You've taken your salvation into your own hands. Your salvation is up to you. And that's a terrifying thought. Because here's what I know about you and I know about me. We're not good enough to save ourselves. We're, we're, there's none righteous, no, not one. No matter how good we, we do or how much we clean our life up, our sin must be forgiven and washed away. And the only way to have your sin washed away is through the shed blood of Christ. Stop trying to take your salvation into your own hands. You're just like Abraham and Sarah. Instead of trusting God's promise, you're, you're taking matters into your own hands, your own cunning and effort. I read about a railway tunnel in Switzerland called the Gothard Base Tunnel. It's a, a railway tunnel that goes under the Alps. It was opened in 2016. It's the world's longest and uh, deepest traffic tunnel. It's almost 36 miles long under the mountains, and it goes to 8,000 feet in depth. 
an amazing engineering marvel to build this railway tunnel under the Alps. Now listen to me. If you are trying to save yourself, if you think you're good enough to save yourself, if your salvation is in your hands instead of trusting God's promise through Christ, it, it would be like you coming to the railway station where that train departs from to get you on the other side of the Alps. And the ticket counter says, you can have this ticket, get on the train, the train will take you to the other side of the Alps, and you say, no thanks. I want a bicycle. And I'm going to pedal my way over the mountains. How do you think that would go? But that's exactly the situation you're in this morning if you're trusting in your moral effort or your goodness to save you. When God provides sure passage to heaven through the finished work of Christ, you are trying to pedal your way through your goodness and you're not good enough. So we see here the contrast between two mothers, two women. Hagar and Sarah. Are you trusting Jesus Christ alone as promise of salvation, or have you taken matters into your own hands? Not only are there two mothers in this passage in Galatians 4, there are two births that are contrasted. Look in verse 23. It says, The son of the slave, that's Ishmael, son of Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, that's Isaac, born to Sarah, was born through promise. Look in verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. But notice here the contrast. One born according to the flesh, one born according to the spirit or the promise. There are, there, there are some differences in these two births. You could say it like this. The son of Hagar was born in accordance with natural processes. Abraham went into Hagar, and biologically, they had a child. The birth of Isaac had a supernatural element because uh, Sarah was beyond childbearing years. She was unable to have a child. The Bible calls her barren. That's the word that the Bible uses. So for her to uh, conceive and have a baby uh, with Abraham would take God's direct supernatural intervention. That's what happened. God miraculously allowed Abraham and Sarah to have a son. So the birth of Isaac had a supernatural element. That's why his, Isaac means laughter. They were laughing. Could God give me a son at this old age? And she laughed, thinking that it was impossible. And she's reminded nothing is impossible with God. There's a supernatural element to Isaac's birth. Now what does this mean for us? These two births, what do, what do they represent? And, and what, is he, what is Paul wanting these two births to represent uh, in, in the Galatian churches? Here it is, you ready? Anyone that is a recipient of God's promise of salvation is the product of God's supernatural working. I'm saying it again. Anyone who is the recipient of God's promise of salvation is the product of God's supernatural working. It, it's, if you are a son of God, there's something supernatural in that that made you a son of God. If you're not a son of God, if you're a slave trying to save yourself, well, that's natural. You're, you're, you're trying to save yourself. You can explain that, can't you? 
But if you're a son, it's like you're Isaac, the son of promise. There's something supernatural in your salvation. We see this over in John 3. Turn with me to John 3 very quickly. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he says there in John 3, verse 3, Jesus talking, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. For you to go to heaven, for you to have a relationship with God, you must be born again. Adrian Rogers used to say it like this. If you're born once, you die twice. If all you've experienced is the natural birth, born to your mom, then you'll die, you'll face physical death, and you'll face eternal death in that awful place called hell. But if you're born twice, you only die once. You face physical death, but then you go to heaven, and you're there with Jesus for eternity, amen? But you must be born again if you're going to go to heaven. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He doesn't get the, the metaphor here. How can, one, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's natural birth, and spirit, that's the new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So the Bible says, if you are born again, if you are saved, if you are redeemed, it happened by the spirit of God. There's a mystery there, but at the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God made you a brand new creation as if you've been born again. Isn't that good news? It happens by the Spirit. Listen, you can't make yourself new. You can try to clean up the outer you and, and, and you can try to you know, climb the ladder of moral effort, but you can't make yourself a new you. Only God can make you a new you. It says over in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. You're only born again by the Spirit. And so God by His Spirit draws us and makes us brand new creations in Christ. And so the new birth corresponds to the birth of Isaac to Sarah and Abraham. There was supernatural, a supernatural element to it. And, and if we are sons of God, there's a supernatural element to our birth. We are born again. So, so here's the application. You listening? You can try to save yourself trusting your own fleshly effort, or you can let God have his way in your life. That's the issue. Save yourself or let the Spirit of God make you new, washing away your sins. You know, in many circles, there is a, an emphasis on 
miracles, wanting to see miracles and wanting to see uh you know the, the extraordinary all of the time, and 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 even some uh, in some Christian circles, there are churches that that focus on miracles, and if they don't see something miraculous in their gathering, they feel like their gathering was in vain. Have we forgotten that the greatest miracle is the miracle of the new birth? Where God takes a ruined sinner, full of self, full of flesh, full of enmity against God, full of sin and transgression, and God washes away that sin and reconciles that sinner to himself in a personal relationship, and by his Spirit makes that person brand new. Is there any greater miracle than that? you are born again, something supernatural has happened to you. It's just like the birth of Isaac, a supernatural element. So there are two mothers in this passage, and there are two births, but, but third, there are two covenants mentioned. Very quickly, two covenants. I know I'm going fast because i got to get to the application, but, but two covenants mentioned in this passage. Back in Galatians 4, I want to show you these two covenants that are mentioned. Look what it says there in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, the whole story with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. It says, these women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. They represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, that would be the old covenant. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. You see, Hagar, Sinai, Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law, the civil law. And Jerusalem, which was the place in the first century where there's a concentration of people trying to save themselves with the law. That was ground zero for folks trying to earn their salvation because they, they did not use the law properly. They thought the law saved them, not showed them their need for a Savior. So he says, you got Hagar, you've got Sinai, you've got the present Jerusalem. All of these are examples of fleshly effort. And it deals with the old covenant. You see, Hagar and Sinai and Jerusalem represent the old covenant that God made with Israel. We've learned in Galatians that no one is able to keep the law perfectly, so everyone has violated the old covenant and is under a curse. So why would you want to live under a curse and think that your effort can save you? You're not good enough. You're under a curse. Only Jesus Christ can save you because he became a curse for you. Galatians 3 verse 10. We've been reminded in Galatians that the old covenant that God made with Israel was never meant to save. It was meant to reveal their need for a Savior. It was the schoolmaster that showed them their need for Christ. So Hagar, Sinai, Jerusalem represent the, the, really the misuse of the old covenant. People using the old covenant thinking, if I do all of these things, then God will accept me. Works-based 
religion. The heavenly Jerusalem that it mentions in verse 27 represents the new covenant. Look what it says there on verse 26. It says, but the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free and she is our mother. For it is written, this is a quote from Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 27 quotes Isaiah 54, 1. This is a great promise from God. Even though Israel had failed and been judged by God, gone into exile, God was not done with his nation. He still planned to send his Messiah through his people to bring blessings to all the peoples on the earth. In other words, Israel would produce many new children through Jesus who would die for the sins of the world, make salvation available to all. This speaks of the new covenant. And and, and it mentions here the, the Jerusalem in heaven. In other words, if you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you become a citizen of heaven. That's the point here. A citizen of heaven. So Israel is not desolate, Isaiah 54, 1. It looked like God was done with them. It looked like he was going to destroy them. But he kept a remnant so he could send a Savior so more and more people could become citizens of heaven. That's what he's saying in this passage. Now we see the connection between the heavenly Jerusalem and the new covenant in Hebrews 12. Look what it says in, or I'll just read it for you, Hebrews 12, verse 21. It says, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, talking about Moses at Mount Mount Sinai, the old covenant. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. And here's what he's saying. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've embraced the new covenant, the new promise from God made available through Jesus. Now, what is the new covenant? What does it mean if I'm a new covenant person? If if I'm a citizen of heaven, I live under the new covenant. Well, the new covenant promises two major things. You ready? It promises forgiveness. That's good, right? And inner transformation. And these are made available through Jesus Christ and his finished work. Let me read you a passage from Hebrews 8 that speaks of this. It says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if the old covenant could save you, then why would there need to be a new covenant? That's his point. Why would Jesus have to come? For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. They couldn't keep it. So I show them no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, Hebrews 8.13, He makes the first one obsolete. 
And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Because Jesus Christ has come, you don't have to try to earn your salvation by keeping the old covenant. You're not good enough to do it. You can experience forgiveness and transformation through Jesus by believing in him. Faith. And you receive these wonderful, wonderful promises. So, because Jesus Christ has come, the old covenant, Hebrews 8 says, is obsolete. If you're a son, why would you want to try to be a slave? Right? That's the point that he's, that he's making. You know, there are many things that I grew up with that are now obsolete. I remember I saw a little uh, picture one day that someone had posted. And it was an ad from Radio Shack in the mid-90s. And had sales on all these different electronic devices. And uh, the caption of the picture said, Every one of the things on this ad are now on your smartphone. Every one of them. Camera, uh, calculator, voice recorder, it's all on your phone now. You don't need all these other things. And so the, all, all those things are, are obsolete. I, I remember, uh, this was years ago, uh, Claire and I were with the kids in a mall in Florida, one of the older indoor malls, which are becoming obsolete. And uh, we were in one of those older indoor malls, and we walked down this hallway to use the restroom and walking back, there were some payphones on the wall. Remember the payphones in the mall? On the long hallway that goes to the bathrooms? You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? And one of my, I can't remember which kid, but one of my kids stopped and said, Dad, what's that? What's this phone keypad on, hanging on the wall? What is that? So I'd explain payphones and what that was all about. And they're, they're obsolete. Anyway. Listen, if you have a cell phone, why would you take 50 cents out of your pocket and use the payphone? That doesn't make sense, right? If you have forgiveness in Christ, if you have transformation in Christ, why would anybody say, well, I'm going to try to save myself? It doesn't make sense. The old covenant is obsolete because of the new covenant that is ours in Christ. So, two mothers, two births, two covenants... Wait, what's all, this got to do, what's all this got to do with us? Well, two applications. I'm going to give you two applications and we'll be through. First application, back in Galatians 4. Rejoice if you are a child of God. Look how, look how Paul closes this section. Galatians 4, verse 31. He talks about freedom in chapter 5. We'll get to that soon in the life of the Spirit. He's going to continue his thought of being free, but, but he closes this section, this allegorical section, with this phrase, this sentence. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We're not, we're not like Ishmael, born to Hagar by human cunning and effort. We've been born again by the Spirit. We've received the promise of blessing through Jesus. We correspond to Isaac, born of Abraham and Sarah, according to the promise of Almighty God. We're not slaves, we're sons. You can sense almost the urgency behind Paul's pen as this verse is written, this sentence is written. Brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Aren't you glad? 
that because of the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you've been made a son or daughter of God. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're not trying to to gain God's favor. You have God's favor. Not because you're good, but because He's good. Because He's given you a, a gift of salvation. So you and I should rejoice if we are children of God. There's an older song that I love and it simply goes like this. Were it not for grace, I could tell you where I'd be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere. Listen, with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go. The battles I would face. Forever running. But losing the race. Were it not for grace. Aren't you grateful that your salvation is not up to you? Aren't you grateful that in Christ you're a son or a daughter of God? Rejoice! That's the point. Rejoice if you are a child of God. But there's another application. And Paul gets real serious here. Here it is. You and I should resist works-based teachers and teaching. Now look what he says back in Galatians 4, verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What's going on there? Well, Paul's going back to the historical example of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. And he he mentions something that happened in in this... convoluted situation. We learn in Genesis that the arrival of Isaac creates a problem in Abraham's home. For 14 years, Ishmael had been Abraham's only son. So how would Ishmael respond to the presence of a new son? Well, we learn in chapter 21, Sarah catches Ishmael laughing and mocking her new baby Isaac. Making fun of him. Probably jealous. And Sarah's not going to have it. Sarah sees this and tells Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael, they've got to go. And with a broken heart, Abraham sends Hagar and his son away. What does that got to do with us? Well, back in the context of Galatians, listen to me. Expect that those who depend upon works will come into conflict with those who depend upon Jesus. Just like Hagar and Sarah came into conflict, Ishmael and Isaac came into conflict. He's using that allegorically to say, children of the promise, sons will come into contact with children of the flesh, slaves. They'll come into conflict with each other. Those two... Ideas cannot coexist. Saved by grace and saved by works. Those don't go together, do they? Both cannot be true. It's one or the other. 
So he's saying if you are a children of the a child of the promise, if you're saved by grace, expect that you'll get some, some persecution or some conflict from people that believe that work saves you. That, that's what he's saying here in this passage. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, so also is it now. Just like Hagar laughed at Isaac, so is it now. You have these Jewish religious teachers coming into your churches in Galatia and saying, hey, we've heard you've received Jesus, that's great. But if you really want to be right with God, you've got to do all these things too. Grace and works coming into conflict. Just like Ishmael and Isaac came into conflict. So we should expect to come into that conflict. We should know that we should always be on guard against work salvation infiltrating our hearts, minds, and churches. Which leads to the next point. Have nothing to do with works-based teachers, denominations, or world religions. He quotes Sarah there in verse uh, 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. Now, he's not sanctioning Sarah's decision to kick Hagar and Ishmael out. He's just taking her quote and applying it to the churches in Galatia. His point is this. Just like Sarah wanted Hagar and Ishmael out of the house, you and the church, sons, should want works-based teachers trying to take you into slavery out of the church. That's what he's saying. He's quoting Sarah to drive this point home. Have nothing to do with works-based teachers, denominations, or world religions. Now, this is not as easy as it sounds. Can, can I tell you why? False teachers don't walk around with a big F on their forehead, whatever that is. All right, F. They don't walk around. They don't walk around. I did the L sign. They don't walk around. You Fortnite fans. All right. They don't. They don't. They don't walk around with a big F on their their forehead to say, "Oh, there's a false teacher. There's a false teacher. There's a false teacher." Would you please leave because you have F on your forehead? It's not that easy. In fact, did you know the Bible says that false teachers are often very charming? He says earlier in chapter 4 that these false teachers made much of the Christians in Galatia. They made them feel good. They flattered them so they would bind to their message. So false teachers are often very charming. They look like they have it together. You can have folks knock on your door and they look nice, they smile, they're polite. They seem moral. They have an emphasis on family. And you think, well, this must be okay. No, their teaching is poison. Because if people buy into works-based salvation, they will die and go to hell. Because no one can save themselves. It's only by grace through faith in Christ that someone is saved. So we've got to be on the lookout. We should never let works-based theology infiltrate our churches, infiltrate our families, infiltrate our lives. We should resist works-based teachers and teachings. Now here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. And it's a question. My, my final point is just a question for you to consider, for you to, to, to just think through with me this morning. And it's really simple, and I know this is a complex passage. There's a lot of stuff here. 
But, but here's what it boils down to. Are you a slave trying to save yourself? Or are you a son of the promise that comes through Jesus? Now listen to me. Everyone in this room is in one of those two categories. Everyone. You're trying to save yourself or, or fulfill your vision of what good looks like. Or you've come to the place where you say, I'm not good. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need grace. And you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave so you could have eternal life and abundant life. So are you a slave trying to save yourself or are you a son of the promise that comes through Jesus? Here's a closing quote from John Stott. These two differences between Abraham's sons that that Ishmael was born a slave according to nature, while Isaac was born free according to promise, Paul recognizes as an allegory. Until in the fulfillment of God's promise, he is set free. So here's what he says. Stott says, So everyone is either an Ishmael or an Isaac, either still what he is by nature, a slave, or by the grace of God set free. Are you an Ishmael or an Isaac? Isaac. 